0: continuing our study in the book of Ephesians of what God expects from His church and from His people. So we've just been taken section by section through the book of Ephesians. It's been exciting. One of the advantages of preaching expositorily through the book through a book of the Bible, it's actually it's got many advantages, um, there are practical advantages, I don't have to worry about what I'm going to preach next week because I'll just pick up where I left off. That's easy for me hear about pastors that are struggling. Boy, what am I going to preach on next week? I just look at the next verse. Oh, I guess that's what I'm preaching on. Another advantage of preaching expository through books of the Bible is you're just going to be confronted with a variety of things to talk about and be confronted with. Like the topic today, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, I called it walk wisely because that's what Paul commands Christians to do, to walk wisely, to live wisely. And he's going to tell us, exactly how to do that. And then next week, uh, we talk about what God has to say about beer. Whoa, those two, isn't that interesting? How practical. The reason I say that is because verse 18, that's what it talks about. Alcohol or wine, drinking. Um, So that's the next verse we're going to deal with. What does God have to say about that? And we need to hear what God has to say about that because it's totally pertinent to the world today. So we're going to continue on in Ephesians 5. The section we've been in in Ephesians 5 actually started little earlier in chapter 4, where Paul thematically is telling Christians, uh, since I told you in chapters 1, 2, and 3 what it means to be a Christian and what it was that Jesus did when he died on the cross and how he purchased your salvation and gave you spiritual life and eternal life, in light of those truths, the rest of the book, he says, now you need to live like a Christian. Now you need to live out your Christian life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul would say in Philippians. So, This is uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are how we are to practically live out our Christian life in obedience to God in light of the fact that He saved us, He put His Holy Spirit in us, and He's given us His Word, which tells us how we are to live. And so that's the theme, and he's specifically talking about our walk. And the way he uses the word walk, Christian, you need to walk like a Christian. You need to walk the talk. And when Paul uses this word walk, he's talking about your lifestyle. What is your lifestyle like? What characterizes you from day to day in terms of your patterns and habits of behavior? If you profess to be a Christian, then those patterns and habits of behavior need to coincide with what Scripture says a Christian should be living like. Real simple. So he gives us a whole bunch of commands. Christian, here's things you need to do in obedience to Christ, and here's things you need to avoid in obedience to Christ. So that's where we're at. And so... Uh, specifically in verses 15 through 17, Paul is going to talk us tell us how to walk a wise Christian life, how we're to live this life as a wise person. Now, if you wanted to know a lot of details about what it means to live a wise life before God, you would go to the book of Proverbs. 31 chapters were written to tell us how to be wise in our living and our decision making. Uh, so this is a complement to that. We need to live a wise life as Christians, and there's practical ways. To do that. So let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 5 verses 15 through 17 and let me read those verses where Paul continues his discussion to Christians and he says, therefore Christians, therefore you Christians at the church at Ephesus and for us today it's therefore you Christians that are at Grace Bible Fellowship in Mountain View, California in 2007. Listen up. Be careful how you walk or live your life. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Making the most of your time Because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So in verse 15, he exhorts us to be wise. And then in verse 17, he exhorts us not to be foolish or stupid in how we live. So there's the theme. Those are the bookends uh, that make this a unit. We need to live wisely the Christian life. And then he gives us reasons or ways that we can do that. And I just came up with three points, so go ahead and look at your outline there. And there are the three points of how to walk wisely or, or live a consistently wise, prudent Christian life. Three priorities to keep in mind. And the way I broke it up is uh, in these three points, just one main point I wanted to make out of verse 15 about how to live wisely, and then one point in 16, and then also the third point is going to be verse Seventeen. So let's go ahead and look at verse 15 about how if you are a Christian and you know Jesus Christ personally, how you can continue or begin maybe and then continue to live a life that is a wise one and not foolish. Because you know, you could live a foolish life and waste your life. I know about that firsthand because for 19 years, I didn't know Christ. I didn't know Jesus. Didn't know the Bible. Never read it. Never studied it. And I look back and I... I just, I'm saddened because the first 19 years of my life were a waste of time. I did not live wisely. I wasted time. I didn't know God. I didn't live the right way. I made dumb decisions. And I invested a lot of time in the wrong things. Not necessarily um, just dark, horrible things, but things were just superficial, things that didn't matter, things that wouldn't make uh, an impact on eternity I wasted 19 years of my life. Sometimes I pray and just grieve, God, oh, I wish I got saved when I was 9 or 7. But why was I allowed to waste 19 years of my life as a fool living without Christ and apart from His will? But there's a great verse, some of you know it, in the Old Testament where God promises to restore the years in your life that the locust has devoured, right? So that's what I'm praying God, I just pray that I can live a very fulfilling life the rest of my days here on earth to make up for my 19 wasted foolish years that I didn't live for you. So, if you know Jesus Christ personally and you are in the family of God, you need to thank Him for it and be a good steward of the Christian life He's given you. And we need to do it wisely. And so, let's go ahead. And I just came up with three principles of how we can do that to the best of our ability. To maximize our Christian life while we are here on earth. Because life is short, isn't it? Life is a vapor. It's here, and then, boom, it's gone. So we need to maximize it. So, let's live wisely. Point number one in verse 15 is the prerequisite for walking wisely. There are prerequisites to living a wise Christian life. Because, you know, you can be a Christian and live a foolish life. I was talking about the 19 years I wasn't a Christian and lived foolishly. You can be a Christian, be saved, know Jesus, and waste a lot of your life. And be a fool. That's why Paul is he's basically telling, talking to Christians, you need to be wise and not foolish. Be careful how you live. So there is a prerequisite for walking wisely as a Christian. What is it? Well, the main thing he emphasizes here, that's critical thinking. It begins with critical thinking. It has to do with the mind. This is a common theme with the Apostle Paul throughout all of his epistles and even in the book of Ephesians and even in these very verses it says if you want to live right you know what comes first you have got to think right. Christianity is first and foremost a religion of the mind. Did you know that? Jesus himself said love the Lord your God in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your strength and your soul and your mind. A lot of people think that Christianity is just a you know a superficial mystical religion based on feelings. And Christians, they don't—they don't think. They don't use their mind with respect to their religion. Man, it's illogical. That's totally not true. As a matter of fact, Christianity is the most rational and logical religion on planet Earth. No, in the universe, because it is based on the mind of God, Almighty God, who is infinite and eternal, and has a perfect mind. So Christianity is the most logical, the most rational religion there is, and. The way we use our minds is absolutely critical and foundational to living a successful Christian life, to living a fulfilling Christian life, to living a wise Christian life. And Paul addresses that. You want to live wisely, it starts with your mind, how you think. That's a prerequisite. It says in verse 15, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. So his first point is there when he's talking about, if you want to be uh, living the Christian life the right way, you need to be wise and not a fool. And he's talking about how you think. Get your mind in order. Don't be sloppy. And how you think. Because there's a lot of sloppy thinkers out there, or passive thinkers. Or how you think about certain things really doesn't matter in the Christian life. Paul says, no, it totally matters. As a matter of fact, that's the foundation of living in a Christian life. So you need to be a critical thinker, using your mind to have a successful Christian life. It's kind of interesting. I put down the different translations of this verse. And they all add different nuances to the original language that I think are, are good. The New American Standard that I just read said, Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Um, The NIV says, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. New King James Version says this. See then that you walk circumspectly. What's circumspect? That's somebody who is, as they're walking in life, they're walking and they're looking around. So they, they notice things. They are not oblivious. They're taking note of the details of what's going on all around. They are familiar with their surroundings and they know it well. That's a circumspect person and that's how they're walking around like this. They're not with their head stuck in the sand as an ostrich, oblivious to what's going on around them. So as Christians, we need to walk or live the life on a... And this is talking about spiritually, how you are spiritually in tune, perceptive and astute. And you're doing it circumspectly. And you are in touch with spiritual realities of what is going on in the world and also what's going on immediately around you. You are not spiritually in a stupor or oblivious to what's going on. You are circumspect in your sensitivities, Uh, The ESV says, look carefully then how you walk. Live a careful life. Now, I wanted to point out uh, the word there translated carefully or circumspectly or very careful is the Greek word "akrobos," which sounds like acrobat, right? Well, what is an acrobat? Well, it's an athlete. And these are athletes of precision. It also depends on what event they're doing. I just, from my mind, goes to that uneven bar, or that, I mean that, no, the parallel, or what is that bar? The beam. Yeah, the beam thing. It's only like six inches wide, and it's one, and they're standing up there, and they're walking on it, which is hard to do without falling, and then they're doing the splits on it, which is really hard to do and impossible for me, and then they're even doing flips on this thing. So every step is precise and particular, And just very, very careful with every move that they make. And that's where the word acrobat comes from. Every move counts. Every step matters. Paul's saying that's how you need to live the Christian life. As an acrobat, with every decision, every choice, every move you make in the Christian life. Especially on the spiritual plane. So we need to be very careful. We need to be exacting. We need to be... Particular. We need to be discerning. And the emphasis here, particular with what, Paul? Exacting with what, Paul? Well, he says with your mind. It starts with the mind and your thinking. You cannot continue on in the Christian life and be wise without being a thinking Christian or a discerning Christian. And this means you need to be a critical Christian, critical with respect to your thinking. It's just a common theme all throughout the Bible. And this is where we need to be. Oh, that's what, by the way, the word he says, you need to be wise, the word he uses there is Sophia. That's a girl's name, Sophia. That means wisdom, the wisdom of God. Sophia in Paul's day meant true insight into the way things really are. If you had true wisdom that came from God, you were able to perceive reality for what it really is. You had the accurate assessment of reality. For example, today we have a lot of things that are spouted as reality that are not reality at all. They are not true. That is not wisdom. I mean, just one thing that's on the front pages just about every day is the idea of just global warming. Did you know that the world is going to die and be destroyed through global warming? That's what we're being told. And I would say from a Christian point of view and a biblical point of view that glo- global warming, it's, it's not true. It is not science. It's actually junk science. It's not even based on science. It's based on a political agenda. So global warming, which the world is trying to tell us and shoving down our throat and being taught in many of the public schools today as truth, not just a theory, but as truth, global warming is happening. And if we don't do something, that's how the world is going to end. And then I read my Bible and say, no, I know how the world is going to end. The world is going to end not with bad news, with good news. The world ends when Jesus decides it's time to end. And he comes out of the sky according to Revelation 19 and he lands on planet earth in Jerusalem. Well, he will be reigning as king for 1,000 years and he will destroy all of his enemies and he will reign victoriously for the saints forever and ever. And then he gives everything up to God the Father so that all things in all ways God will be glorified throughout eternity. That's the way the world is going to end, not through global warming. So that is truth. So that's what I'm talking about. That's what Paul is saying. Be discerning. Have wisdom from God And discern things as they really are. Global warming is not a reality. But people are trying to tell us it is. They're saying that is truth. It's not. That's just one example. But that's what the secular world is saying right now. Now, the way the Christian church typically works is that there's some theme or bandwagon or agenda that the secular world has, and they harp on it for a long period of time. And then about five, ten years later, the Christian world comes around and actually starts believing that. So I'm just going to make a prediction. This is not a prophecy, so don't stone me if I'm wrong. This is just a prediction. I predict that probably in the next five to ten years, the evangelical church in America is going to get all worked up about global warming. We're going to see it. As a matter of fact, we're seeing it already begin to happen in some quarters of the church. And it's becoming a priority and agenda for local churches. We need to fight against global Well, anyway, enough of that. It's not true. We need to be critical thinkers. We need to be discerning. Just a couple of key verses by way of reminder. First Thessalonians 5.21. We need to be thinking Christians, discerning Christians, examining everything in light of God's truth. And that's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says. This is the Apostle Paul talking to Christians in Thessalonica. And they lived in a pagan world. They were surrounded by pagan religion. Christianity was not the majority religion in their day. So Paul reminds them that they need to be discerning and critical in their thinking. First Thessalonians, look at chapter 5, verse 21. Very simple, Paul said, but examine everything. Examine, examine, critique, take careful, take careful note of, scrutinize. And he's talking about truths or things that are passed off as truth. Worldviews, philosophies, doctrines, teachings, things that are being promulgated as truth examine, scrutinize, everything needs to come through the grid. This is a command, by the way. Christians are supposed to be doing this. Examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. And particularly it's the evil teaching, false teachings, wrong doctrine. Get rid of it. Scrutinize it. Be discerning. Be a thinking Christian. So it's a command. If you don't, Oh, let's go to a, another passage that's similar to that, uh, Philippians chapter 4. Again, uh, that the priority and obligation of every Christian is to be a thinking Christian, using your mind, your intellect for God's glory, being deliberate and careful and exacting with precision about it, examining everything that comes down the pike through the grid of God's truth. He says the same thing to Philippians in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Finally, brethren, this is in a section where Paul's talking about how we use our mind, how we use our mind in prayer, how we're supposed to avoid worry, and then he's talking about deliberate thinking patterns in verse 8. Finally, brethren, finally, Christian, whatever is true, whatever corresponds to reality. There's a lot of things that are not true in our day and age that people are trying to tell us is true. For example, they would say that evolution is true. And we would say, no, it's not we didn't come from monkeys. We didn't come from goo. They want to tell us we came from animals or and originally goo. You went from goo to the zoo to you. No, it didn't happen that way. <laughs> the Bible's very clear. Evolution is not true. Uh, God created Adam and Eve, the first two human beings. And then in Revelation chapter, I mean in uh, Exodus chapter twenty, it says that God made the world in six days. That's it. That's true. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. So, verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is true, corresponds to reality as God tells us. Well, how do we know whether something's true or not? Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the truth, right? Jesus said that. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth. I am the truth. Jesus is truth. And what he spoke is truth. And Jesus said in John 17, 17, thy word is truth, as he was praying to God the Father. So God's word, the Bible is truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus said in John 14 and 16 that He would send the Holy Spirit who was the Spirit of truth who would lead us into all truth. So the Bible is the truth. Jesus is the truth. The Spirit that indwells us is the truth. The book of Timothy says that the church was going to be the guardian of the truth. So you got the church... The Bible, Jesus, and the Spirit of God dictates and determines and is the grid for us as Christians what is true and what is false. But it has to do with the mind. Look at Philippians 4, eight again. Finally, brethren, whatever is true. And then he goes on with several other adjectives. But look at the end of verse 8. Well, what about true things? Let your mind dwell on these things. Legizomite. Think about these things. Ruminate on these things. Meditate on these things. Contemplate these things. Think only about these things. So our mind should be preoccupied with truth and examining and critically thinking about that which is truth. And as he said in Thessalonians, if it's not true, get rid of it. It'll pollute your mind. It'll pollute your mind. A successful Christian life starts with correct truth. Thinking. After all, what in the world is Satan trying to do? He's trying to devour and destroy people's lives, particularly Christians. First Peter 5.8 Beware, be on the lookout, for your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He wants to rip and shred us apart and d- destroy us spiritually. Well, how does he do it? Well, Paul read from 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He just read it. The God of this world, that's Satan, has done what? He has blinded the what? He has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Satan is first and foremost attacking people's minds. He is attacking truth. He is attacking what they believe. That's where it starts. That's a consistent theme all throughout Scripture. One more. Look at Romans chapter 12. Uh, Romans 12. Talking about the priority of the mind and the thinking Christian, the discerning Christian. It's very depressing to go out into the evangelical Christian world here in America today and just see what's coming down the pike and what is being accepted and embraced with respect to what the Christian church is saying is true, and so much of it is not true. It's, it's, I mean, I, I, I have a hard time even going to your average bookstore, Christian bookstore, to see the, just the shelves littered with things that are just blatantly not true and not biblical. We have got to be discerning. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, Christians, if you're a Christian, this is for you, this is for me. It's a command by the mercies of God, in light of everything God has done for you and saved you. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Live holy. But what's the prerequisite for living holy? It has to do with your mind. That's verse 2. Well, how do we live holy in a pleasing way to God? Well, get a hold of your mind. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. Do not be squeezed into the mold of this world's ideologies and philosophies and worldview, but rather be transformed, metamorphosis, changed from the inside out is what it means. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Present tense, it's an ongoing, regular pattern of behavior as long as you are a Christian. We, have, we are in the business constantly, or we should be, of renewing our mind, replenishing our mind, just like a computer, right? You feed good information in it in order to get what you want to come out. Garbage in, garbage out. Truth in, truth out. So we've got to constantly be cleaning our mind and filling our mind, replenishing our mind with truth. That's the key. It's the foundation. So it's the prerequisite for walking wisely, being a discerning, critical, biblical thinker. Point number one. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and look at Paul's second point in how we are to walk wisely or live a wise Christian life. And that's verse 16. He says this, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, so get your thinking in order. And then another practical, verse 16, making the most of your time because the day's, Are evil. So this is part of how we are to walk wisely. How are we to walk wisely, Paul? Well, to be a critical thinker and then also to make the most of your time. Absolutely essential. So point number two is the priority for walking wise. The priority for walking wise. After you have the prerequisites down, what is the priority in terms of implementing that? And then the second part of that is redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. This is the second point to keep in mind if we want to live a wise life be a wise guy for Jesus if you will making the most of your time look at the different translations there it's kind of interesting actually there's one word that is the key verb here it's a long word it's a compound word ex-agorizomai agorizomai you don't need to know that but the English translations all tried to translate it in different ways again with different nuances trying to emphasize the truth here The New American Standard takes that one word and says, making the most of your time. So they use one, two, three, four, five English words to translate one Greek word. Making the most of your time. If you're going, some of you might be interested in going to Bible translation sometime in the future. I know you're going to have a struggle here trying to translate from one language to another. It's not an easy task. Making the most of your time. The NIV says, making the most of every. That one word, making the most of every. Uh, the ESV says making the best use of. Translating just one word again, King James says redeeming the time. Okay, that's the most literal translation right there because the word is redeeming. That's what it means. If you want to be wise, you need to be redeeming the time. Redeeming. Redeeming is the word. That's the literal word. And then the new, uh, no, the NET Bible says taking advantage of. So those are just different translations of that word redeeming. And it's you know we have been redeemed. If you're a Christian, you've been redeemed by Christ. But this word, Paul adds uh, a preposition to the front of it to uh, make it emphatic of what he's trying to say here. So it's a compound word. Redeem the time. And the word for time in the text there is talking about uh, seasons of time or opportunities that come your way or advantages that come up in your life with respect to time. Opportunities and seasons of life, opportunities you have as you interact with different people or Whatever, take advantage of those opportunities is what he's saying. But again, that key word there, redeem the time. That word, agorazomai, agora is the root word. Agora, does that sound familiar? If you lived 2,000 years ago in Greece or in Rome, you knew what the agora was. The agora was the public marketplace. That's where everybody, that's where the, the hubbub was. If you liked people, that's where you went on the street corners and that's where everybody was and people were all over the place, at the marketplace, at the agora. And today in America, we have agoraphobia. Have you ever heard of that? Agora, that's people who are afraid of people. They're afraid of crowds. They have agoraphobia. That's where this word comes from. It's the marketplace or the public marketplace. And in Paul's day in particular, at the public marketplace is where purchasing went on. Buying and selling at the agora or the agora. And many times slaves were brought to the public marketplace and slaves were wagered or they were sold or sometimes auctioned off. That's what he's saying here. And he's saying that's what time is. Time is a commodity. And you know what? All of us have how many hours? Twenty-four. We are all stewards of the same amount of time, aren't we? It's the great leveling agent. And Paul is saying we need to be good stewards of our time and it's like we are at the slave market and we need to buy up our time. We need to buy back the time and opportunities. For God and redeem the time. And that word for agora, buying back, literally that's what it means. To buy back the time. To redeem the time. To purchase the time. To buy it and to own it and use it well. To be a good steward of the time. So these are economic terms. So Paul is saying, and it's a command. He's commanding Christians to invest in your spiritual spiritual portfolio. Now there are plenty of people, especially in the Bay Area and the Silicon Valley, who have a financial portfolio. What's your portfolio? Here's my portfolio. Can you take care of my portfolio? I don't have a portfolio. But anyway... So that's a very common thing. We need to invest in our portfolio. We need to guard in our portfolio. We need to protect our portfolio. We need to write up with a lawyer and all that regarding our portfolio and pass it on to our children, our financial portfolio. And Paul is saying, you know what's even a greater priority? is your spiritual portfolio. You need to buy up opportunities and purchase opportunities as they come your way that have to do with the kingdom of God. Spiritual opportunities. You need to invest in your spiritual portfolio every opportunity and chance that you have. Because life is short, life is quick, and when we die, whether you're a Christian or you're an unbeliever, we have to give an account to God for everything that He entrusted to us. If you're a Christian, God has entrusted to us time and opportunities and gifts and skills and abilities, and God has commanded us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Our entire life and everything we do as a Christian should honor God. And that includes how we spend our time. So when Paul says you need to redeem the time, he's talking about taking advantage for God of opportunities that come your way in life. How do you take best advantage of the opportunities that come your way? Well, basically what it comes down to is decision making, isn't it? And it's establishing priorities. That's how simple it is. So as Christians, we need to establish the right priorities in our life for every area of life. And you know what? It doesn't even matter how old you are. You could be in middle school right now. You could be in high school. You could be in college. You could be single and a career person. Or if you are married, if you are single, it doesn't matter where you are. If you are a Christian, we are all responsible for establishing God-honoring priorities in our life. Because once we establish priorities, you know what? We're going to live by those priorities, aren't we? Whatever our priorities are, that's what we're going to be committed to. We are going to live for those. The question is, are these godly priorities? Are these priorities that honor God, that advance the kingdom, that nurture our spiritual growth? That's what Paul is saying. We need to buy up the time. What are your priorities? Make sure they're godly priorities. Take all of your priorities and evaluate it and offer it to God. Ask God to scrutinize your priorities. I need to ask God to scrutinize my priorities, my commitments, my schedule. Look at your weekly calendar. Look at your monthly calendar. How are you spending your time? What are you committed to? That's what Paul's saying here. Every opportunity. You only get it once. Seasons of life. Be a good steward of the time that God has given you and honor Him with it. Look at Go to Colossians 4 because there's a parallel passage. There are several passages and verses in Colossians that parallel Ephesians with very similar, sometimes identical themes. But in Ephesians 5, Paul says, make the most of your time or redeem the time. And then in Colossians, look at chapter 4. Is that parallel statement there? Uh, what is he talking about? Redeem our time how? Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. And just look at the things that he's talking about. Chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Prayer should be a priority for a Christian. Take an inventory of your spiritual portfolio, as I should. And think about your prayer life. What is your prayer life like? How consistent is it? When was the last time you had prolonged time in prayer, one-on-one with God? That's what he's talking about. Devote yourselves to prayer. Uh, Verse 3, praying. Verse 4, in order that And then verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom, there's the word wisdom again because that's the theme, toward who? Outsiders. Conduct yourself, live wisely towards unbelievers that you interact with. This could be your neighbors, the people at work, wherever you go. Live wisely around uh, outsiders, unbelievers. Notice, making the most uh, of every opportunity, redeeming the time. So that's what he's talking about. So when Paul says in Ephesians, we need to redeem the time, making the most of every opportunity, he's talking about uh, how we live spiritually our life day to day. And as we act with unbelievers, are we taking every advantage of every opportunity we have to share the gospel, or at least to plant a seed for God and to further his kingdom? Because we need to be doing that. Establishing the right priorities. Um, and, it, you know, this, like I said, this applies to every area of life. I mean, as a parent, you could apply this to your own life, okay, uh, and just examine, okay, what do I do for free time? How do I spend my free time? How much time do I spend with my spouse, which is the most important human relationship I have on planet Earth? And if you are married, you need to invest time in a deliberate, systematic way with your spouse that is quality time, because that is the foundation for everything else you do. It's the foundation for how you parent. It is the foundation for your ministry in the church, cultivating and nurturing your marriage relationship. Absolutely foundational. So that applies to this. Taking every opportunity to invest in the spiritual development of your marriage relationship and also how you parent. How are you raising your children, parents? Are you making spiritual truth and spiritual life and kingdom living a priority for your children as you raise them? This is a struggle I have as a pastor as I work with parents, and not just in this church, but it has been ever since I've been involved in ministry. And I've I've been involved in ministry, in children's ministry, for almost 20 years because that's where I started out. So I was always interacting with parents. Christian parents, as a pastor in several churches and also as a school teacher in several Christian schools. And I am amazed at how many Christian parents are oblivious or don't give uh, care to how they're raising their Christian children with respect, with the right priorities. Sometimes parents are raising their children vicariously, wanting them to succeed in certain areas, or maybe they didn't succeed, or have them succeed in certain areas that don't necessarily advance the kingdom of God. It could be in sports. It could be in Boy Scouts. It could be even musically. I mean, you can actually spend a lot of time and energy in all these activities with the wrong motive or not with God's kingdom being advanced necessarily. Those are the kind of things you have to commit to God. I mean, for example, if I had a choice between investing or having my children spend time and energy for nine months in owana learning the fundamentals of the Christian faith, Being nurtured by other believers, memorizing the Word of God and hiding it in their heart to lay a foundation for how they think for the rest of their life long term. Versus, am I going to enroll them in karate? Eastern philosophy and mysticism. I know about karate and the martial arts because three of my brothers were in it. And one of my brothers is a black belt in taekwondo. I know everything about it. I grew up with it. For me as a parent, it's a no brainer. Here's an opportunity I have one time with my children. I am going to immerse them in things that advance the kingdom of God and also that are profitable to the foundation for them as they grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Like the Bible says, that's my responsibility as a parent. Redeem the time. And it all comes down to right priorities. And you know what? That's between you and God. You've got to evaluate it as a Christian and ask for God's wisdom and have Him scrutinize every area of your life and make sure you have the right priorities. I need to do the same. Now, the second part of this verse is interesting. Look at, Go back to verse 16. Redeem the time. Use every opportunity for God wisely as a steward who will be accountable for, for the time and opportunities God has given you. And he says this, because the days are evil, because the days are wicked. And he's talking about this, this day and age. Paul was saying as he looked out as an authoritative apostle of God, as he looked out during the time in which he lived, he said, this, this is a wicked life. And all he was saying, and all he meant, was that Paul was saying he lived in a fallen world. This this world is fallen, it is sinful, it is wicked. It all started back with Adam and Eve, and you know what, it's going to continue. The days are evil. Things are not going to get better. They're not going to get rosy all of a sudden. Look at history. It's a mess. That's just reality. That's what the Bible says. It's kind of sad and depressing, isn't it? Because the days are evil. Paul, you were such a pessimist. No, he was a realist. The days are wicked. The days are evil. So when horrible, terrible, wicked, evil things happen, it really shouldn't surprise us when a student goes onto a college campus and murders everybody in cold blood. That is not a surprise to the Bible. The days are evil. And the culmination of history is fast approaching. Hence, The need for a sense of urgency on the part of Christians to be good stewards of the time for it is short. It is passing quickly. Who knows what else is going to happen? Who knows if we're going to be alive tomorrow? Live every minute for Christ. Carpe diem. Seize the day for Him and His glory because the days are evil. They are wicked. There ain't no utopia coming until Jesus returns. No age of Aquarius like the hippies tried to tell us who were on drugs back in the 60s. Ain't going to happen. The Bible says, as a matter of fact, evil men and the days are even just, they're going to get worse and worse. Sometimes I hear older people who've been around longer look back and say, boy, America's going to pot and it's pretty bad and wicked today. Thinking, well, it's not going to get any better. It's actually just going to get worse uh, because the days are evil. Sin abounds. Satan is real. That's what Paul's saying. Hell is a reality. People are going to hell without the gospel. There's a sense of urgency on the, the part of Paul that's motivating us to be good stewards of our time, making the right priorities to advance the kingdom of God and God's plan. So that's the priority for the Christian, to walk wisely, how you live your life. What are your priorities? Do some inventory, ask God for wisdom in how you live every area of your life. Let's go on to point number three the Apostle Paul makes. As far as living wisely, we need to be a critical thinker. Living wisely, we need to redeem the time, taking advantage of every opportunity for God. And then finally, number three, that's verse 17 the purpose for walking wise. The motive for walking wise. Well, it's it's Christ-centered motives. That's all. What motivates us to live a wise life? So if you're a Christian and I were to ask you, why do you want to do that? It should be ultimately because I want to honor God. That's the correct answer. So what is your major? Uh, I'm such and such. What do you want to be when you grow up, if you grow up? I ask that question frequently. People get insulted. What do you mean if I grow up? Well, okay, assuming you grow up. What do you want to be based on your major? And if you're if you're a Christian, or maybe you have a job right now, or you have decided on a career, and I were to ask you, well, why do you want to go into that career? Or why are you doing that job? Why do you want to be that the rest of your life? If the answer is, well, because I can make a lot of money, or I can have a lot of power and prestige, or but for a Christian there should only be one answer. It's because God has laid it on my heart, and I believe this is the occupation and career He's given me to to best honor Him, to maximize all of my potential and giftedness for His glory. And hopefully you enjoy it in the process. That's the only answer. That's 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So this is the motive for why we do what we do, why we make the decisions that we do, why we have the priorities that we do. It has to be to honor God, living a Christ-centered life, doing what pleases Him. That's verse 17. Let's look at it. So then, Do not be foolish. Do not be a fool. One translation says, don't be stupid. It's the modern English translation. Don't be stupid, but rather understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand. That's a very specific word. It's a different word than Sophia. And it's a different word than the common Greek word gonosco, to know. Understand. It's a bigger umbrella term. It means to know. It means to know truth. It means to know facts. It means to know intellectually, but it also means uh, to know in a practical way. Get the right information. Believe it and commit to it. So it's a practical knowledge. This is a command. If you want to walk wisely and please God, then you need to understand the truth. You need to know truth and you need to apply truth. And specifically, he says, you need to understand what the will of the Lord is. Keeping in mind, this is a command. Every Christian is commanded to know the will of God. This is a command. We are supposed to know what the will of God. What does the will of God mean? The will of God, that just simply means what God wants. Or actually, it's the will of the Lord There. The will of the Lord. By the way, the word Lord consistently in the book of Ephesians that occurs over 20 times always refers to Christ, to Jesus Christ. So, Christian, if you want to live wisely, not be foolish and not be stupid, then you need to understand, comprehend, and apply the truth of things that please Jesus Christ. You need to know the will of God, pursue it, and apply it. The will of God is simply what Jesus wants. What does Jesus want? Like we talked about last week. It's not what, what would Jesus do, it's what does Jesus want? How do we know what Jesus wants? It's in the Bible, the will of God. The will of God is not a mystery. It is not a secret. The will of God has been revealed in Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you get a concordance and you look up the word will, the will of God, or the will of the Lord, it, re- it occurs several times. This is the will of God. That's the will of God. Some of them, 1 Thessalonians has a couple of them. The will of God is that we pray and be thankful. Giving thanks, being a thankful person is part of the will of God. First Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you would be holy and abstain from sexual immorality. So God's will is that we would be sexually pure. Uh, this is the will of God, Second Peter 3, 9. That not any should perish, but all men should come to repentance. So repenting from sin is the will of God. So that phrase, the will of God, is repeated time and time again in Scripture. So the will of God is not a mystery. It is not a secret, and the will of God can be known. This is an important point today. Did you know we live in post-modern society? And the church, people are trying to tell us, we live in a post-modern Christian era. And there are many evangelicals that are adapting what they call post-modern Christianity. And the main thesis of postmodernism simply is that you can't be certain of anything. You can't know anything with any certitude or finality whatsoever. Christians are believing that. I know they are because I'm talking to them. I'm reading the books that are teaching it in the Christian church. I was talking to a friend who grew up in the church, who's been involved with ministry, whom I thought... By the way, they're not sitting here this morning, so you don't need to get nervous. Who's a Christian, who loves the Lord, who's knowledgeable, who believes the Bible's the Word of God. And we were having this conversation. We're kind of going around and around. And I'm starting to raise my eyebrows and thinking, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. What this person is saying and what they're believing... And ultimately, uh, it came down to they just told me, bottom line, well, you know what, Cliff, we can't believe anything for sure anyway. I was like, what? We can't believe anything with certainty anyway? I said, you've got to be kidding me. The Bible says we can't. Where'd you get that? And it basically came from a book he was reading by a Christian pastor who was telling him that, which was postmodern emerging church Christianity. You can't know anything for certainty. And the Bible says, yes, you can. All kinds of things. Uh that we can know for certainty. Listen to just I'm just going to read a couple of verses that remind you, Christian, that there are things that we can know with dogmatism. Did I say dogmatism? I'm a kind of a black and white kind of a guy. Why are you so dogmatic? Uh, That's one of the critiques that other religions make of Christianity. You guys are so narrow and you're so sure of yourself, it irritates me. How do you know that's not true? We can't know that's true. Yeah, we can. Because the Bible says so. For example, first John five thirteen. John the Apostle, These things I have written to you, Christian, those who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that I'm writing this to you for the purpose of what? In order that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know right now, present tense. That's a promise to the Christian. We can know truth. I can know with certainty that when I die as a Christian, I will immediately go into the presence of God. Christianity is the only religion that can make that assertion. As a matter of fact, in First John, Tim Wong is studying this on Friday nights. John says that over and over again. You can know. You can know. You can know. All these truths that we can know in the here and now. This just goes against the grain of the emerging church and evangelical Christianity today, and postmodern Christianity, who says we can't know. Listen to this one. This is amazing. First John two three, and by this we know that we have come to know. Not only can we know things, we can know that we know things. you talk about the height of arrogancy. Wow. No, it's not the height of arrogancy. It's the height of confidence that God gives the Christian because they have the indwelling Holy Spirit who confirms truth in our heart and has given us of His Word, which is truth. We can know. And we can know the will of God because it's been revealed in Scripture. So this gives the Christian great confidence in how we live our life. Walking wisely, walking confidently, because we can know truth, we can know the Word of God, we can know what pleases Christ, and seek to obey Him in those very specific, particular things that give Him glory. That is the purpose of the Christian life, and everything we do, every decision we make, or at least it should be. So, Paul tells us what an awesome, great, and encouraging truth. One of the things that we can know according to Scripture, I think it's Job. Who said, I know my Redeemer lives. I know my Redeemer lives. That was even before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we can say the same thing, right? We know that Jesus is alive because He conquered death. He rose again from the dead. He is in heaven. He reigns on high. He looks down upon us. He is even in the midst of His saints. He is even in your heart if you know Him. I know my Redeemer lives. And we can know right now in this life that we have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who Himself is God. And if you're here this afternoon and you don't, you're not confident of this truth, you don't know God personally, or at least you're not sure that you do, but you would like to, then you can just talk to God about it. God, reveal Yourself more to me so that I can know You personally as Your Word has promised. And with that, let's go to prayer and commit our time to God. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for not abandoning us, but communicating to us, speaking to us, telling us clearly who you are and what you expect, even telling us very specifically what, what your will is, what you want from us. And that's the will of God, and it's given in Scripture. So thank you for our time together. Thank you for telling us how we can live wisely. And it starts with with being a Christian and knowing you personally. And God, help every believer here be a discerning thinker and think consciously about redeeming every opportunity for you and always searching our hearts so that our motives are Christ-centered and all things ultimately so that you get the glory. That's what it's all about. And God, those maybe who don't know you this afternoon, you'd be working on their hearts and that you would reveal yourself to them as you promised you would. You promised you would do it through the work of your Holy Spirit on their heart. You promised you would do it through the sharing and the preaching of the Word of God and in response to prayers of your people and the witness of your saints. And we trust, we know you're going to do that. So God, we thank you for this afternoon. We pray you would go before us. We commit it all to you in Christ's name. Amen.